Welcome to Connect to Joy. Your host, Carol DeShane, is an intuitive spiritual guide for practical matters and Marconic multidimensional energy practitioner. Her quest is to help you realize new possibilities, discover and release what holds you back, and enable you to manifest an inspired life filled with joy. Join us on this journey of transformation. Now, here's your host, Carol DeShane. Welcome, beautiful spirits. Today, we're going to be talking about awakening to our true self with my guest, Catherine Jansen Burkett. We're told you're already enough and that we need to strive to be more. It can get a little confusing because awakening can mean a lot of different things to different people. It can mean remembering what you already know, learning new things, or just becoming aware that you are more than you know. So let's unravel some of this today with my guest. Catherine Jansen Burkett, MPH, LPC, has long had a passion for embodied wakefulness, wakefulness as a lived experience rather than simply a conceptual one. Her early professional life was a happy one as she enjoyed meaningful work in the field of public health. But over time, she felt an inner stirring and what was to ensue was a transition into her current work as a psychotherapist. For the past 15 years, she has guided others with personal and relational transformation as her clients discover their own path of embodied wakefulness. Now, Catherine is thrilled to bring her work forward in her first book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness. She presents nine aspects of wakefulness within a framework of the inner and outer world. She not only offers powerful ideas, but ways to integrate each with an inspiring story from the field. And she's also going to be offering our listeners a special package of relationship tools. And we'll talk about that towards the end of the show. And I really enjoyed your book, Catherine. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much, Carol, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, why don't we jump right in? Because I'm always curious because my change to being a life coach happened due to a shift in my life. And usually there's big shifts that people happen in their life. And that's the reason why sometimes their life makes a dramatic shift. I was wondering how did your career as a therapist and author come about? It came about in a very surprising way, even though, um, and we can get into this if we'd like to, Carol, early in my life, I, my dad was a therapist and I started doing personal work in the form of seeing therapists. I really loved my, my journey in public health and in just healthcare. So I was securely in that. I was actually just at a personal retreat um, in my late 30s in California. And in this retreat, it was, do you have a dream? Do you have something trying to happen in your life? And I literally got the call from the universe. You're going to be a therapist. Now, I already, having not graduated from high school, already had a master's in public health and retirement set and raising two, the finishing of two of my six children. So this was not a convenient call from the universe. <laughs> this <it> one <laughs> like, what and how and um, it was a lot about trusting, um, but it was so clear. And I just discovered a wonderful program through a local university, uh, Lewis and Clark, and decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm even going to do private practice. I'm really going to trust. Um, I'm not going to work for someone else. I'm going to let this kind of come through me. So it was really um, listening to that call, not getting hung up on some of the details of the how and the when, and it's changed my life. It's changed my marriage. I wouldn't be the same mom that I am. And I was really excited because I'm not the therapist of my children, wanted to offer my book to my clients and my kids and friends of just what I learned along the way, having come through a lot about how to be wakeful in our human life. Well, what brought you to write the book? Again, a kind of sense of a calling. I, um, I've just always delved into personal growth and have had many spiritual teachers and felt like a couple of things. My background in public health, a lot of people are scared of therapy and they can't afford it. So I felt like I really wanted to give people the kind of handbook of like, okay, you don't cherish your body. Let me help you with that. You don't have freedom from your mind. You're caught in your thoughts that you believe and your rabbit holes. Let me help you with that. You're scared about death and dying. Let's embrace it. Let's, let's really dive into conscious relationship. So it, it was not just a book about these wonderful ideas of living a conscious life. It was really practical. 
And again, my main dedication is to my kids because I can't be their therapist, but I wanted to, before I passed, I really wanted to give them something that they could return to in any part of their life to feel like they had some, you know, resourcing. I like the metaphor that you use with the river. So could you want to explain a little bit about that for the listeners? Sure. So the premise of my book is spiritual from the standpoint of we are all connected to a greater whole, however any of us might connect with that or or resonate around that. I use the word God only one time and then back off from that because it isn't a religious book. And so part of our large experience happens, of course, through our human journey. And so when we think of the ocean, it's vast you know, and it's a big body of water, but there are many rivers that feed the, the ocean and be the, the metaphor of we are our own river kind of honors the uniqueness. Sometimes some rivers just have a really easy way to the ocean. Others have a lot of mountains to climb, rocks to traverse, and some <laughs> of us relate to that. So it captured the uniqueness of the human journey and our own preciousness of ourselves and that individualism in a way, but also that we're part of that larger whole. And I'm also a really big nature person. So I thought, you know, maybe a nature metaphor is a way for people to connect with this, these ideas. I know it made a lot of sense when you were explaining about some of this in the book. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because sometimes I'll go to the end of the book in order to see if there's a summary. So in case I don't have time to finish the whole book mm-hmm. and I looked at it and I went, Hmm, okay. I think I need to read this whole book. <laughs> let me, oh, let me oh, check oh. sections and see it. Cause I, sometimes I just mm-hmm. don't have time. And sure. if I reading, uh, sure. doing too many guests at once and it's like, Oh no. Okay. Well, sometimes you just have to read the whole freaking book because oh. you need it. You know, you need to be able to yeah. get through it yourself. So it was, yeah. it was a gift. So thank you for writing that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you for acknowledging. Were there any struggles particularly that you went through that helped you clarify some of the things in the book? Well, struggles about the, the journey of writing and publishing or just um, kind or of life in general, either way. Through. Yeah. You know, it's not a memoir. Um, I, I also felt like I, and now it's actually almost 20 years of clinical practice. There's so many stories of the hard work, the struggles of others, not just my own, of kind of getting out of the ego, healing our trauma, kind of persevering, even now these days with what's happening in the world. And so um, not just the ideas and then ideas of how to put those ideas into practice, like intrinsic worth or befriending oneself, but also these stories from the field are about the kind of the struggle to get there. Um, So if we were to pick any particular aspect of those nine aspects I've wrote about, for example, uh, in Embracing Death and Dying, one of the stories is a man, he is still living, but he is close to his death. You know, it's it's one thing to say embracing death and dying, but he has terminal illness. Like this is really it. It's it's rubber meets the road time. And so when he wrote his his story from the field, it was so inspirational that he actually, by facing death, not running from it, he has experienced a better life through this process now. That's what I wanted the book to really uh, resonate with for people. These are real people. And this is very, very, it's not impossible to have the experience of transformation in those struggles. And there are so many struggles that people have, especially now with the anger and all the other stuff and the fear that's come up over the last couple of years, that it's interesting to see how each individual deals with that particularly each struggle. Exactly. And I think, you know, when I first wrote the book, a lot of the focus was on kind of the personal and inner world pieces and even more the the relational pieces of one's life, like intrinsic worth or cherishing the body where people have been violent towards their body or dealing with the mind, you know, but there is a, a belongingness that I think is a more important message that I think is critical these days and interconnectedness that uh, we forget, we get lost in our differences. And then when we are 
distant enough in our differences, it is very easy to have an othering of another, whether it's a family member or somebody that lives across the world. And so I think now I'm, I'm really committed to this idea that we belong to each other and that's an intrinsic species. <laughs> we need to connect at that really basic level. However you vote, Carol, whatever your way of being, whether it would be friends outside of this podcast, we are deeply and intrinsically connected to one another. I know that being aware of all of this and wakefulness in general to me means being aware mm-hmm. and having our attention on what matters to us. And I, I kind of think of awakening and wakefulness as part of the same thing. So what does wakefulness mean to you? So we're kind of on the same page. That's a great question. And by the way, I think it's kind of gotten a political spin these days of woke. So I'm a little annoyed because I was right. This came from a very, the older version or older idea of wakefulness, waking up to one's life. So we can get wake up calls like I got to do this career or write this book, or, you know, you have to see something, a shadow of yourself. It's also can be more nuanced than that. Sometimes it's not as dramatic, but it's just as powerful to be awake every day, to wake up to your life and say, am I coming from love or fear? Am I coming from a sense of separation or connection? And that's not to not have boundaries, but that to me, it's more the applied embodied every day. I am my, myself at best, my most conscious self. And so for some of us, that goes right into daily practice. That means we have honest relationships and invite others to be honest with us. We are approachable to that, which is my marriage, which are the relationships I have with my children. So that's, it's, it's a very applied idea of it. It's not lofty. It's not just, uh, you know, go to church once a week and a feel good kind of thing. It's, it's more like, where am I not wakeful? <laughs> it tends to get us the most mileage. To wake ourselves up, just to even be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And we have that inner voice that really is here to serve us. And why I like the idea of intrinsic worth is if I'm asleep, if I am not treating myself or someone well, if I am abusing the environment, if some that I there's a part of me that knows that. But if I if that fallibility, if that humanity is shameful to me, I'm actually going to shut down that voice and I'm not going to see where I'm asleep. I'm not going to be wakeful in my life. It's critically important to have that sense of intrinsic worth where I get to be human and fallible and I'm not perfect. And then I can see more honestly and truly what is I can see that shadow without my worth being on the line. Sometimes I know we do that to ourselves where we're definitely judging ourselves constantly as a human being, instead of saying, Oh, it's just what's happening. Just look back and take the step back and don't take everything personally. That's right. Well, and, and so I will ask people, they'll say, well, how do I wake up in my life? And I, I, my first question is actually more, well, is it safe? For you to get the information, because if you're just going to beat yourself up, if you're just going to judge yourself, there will be a way you will have defenses that will keep this information down. But if you can come from a place that is self-compassionate, even though you need to be accountable to this thing, then that information can download to us and then it can be applied to our life. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I was wondering with wakefulness, how does it help us navigate our human journey Because I know being aware and awake, we don't go through like sleepwalking. I mean, we want to be aware of what's happening. We don't want to like do that. So we need to pay attention and let each lesson be obvious to us, as you said, if we feel safe. But how, so how can that actually help us? Maybe I already asked that question. I don't know if there's. That's okay. Well, what's popping in to offer as kind of an additional piece might be three things to keep in mind. One is mindfulness, mindfulness from the idea of accepting what is, right, and being fully present in the moment. But mindfulness also is about slowing down. If we're going at the speed of light, it's pretty hard for the stuff we need to be saying to paying attention to, to reach us, because we're actually too busy. We're in distraction. So mindfulness as slowing down, being fully present, being honest about what is, um, that's, that's big number one. 
Number two, I would say, is this path of not disassociating from our emotions and our body. Emotions and body, it's interrelated to getting that information that, again, then, as we said a minute ago, we would then be applying to my life. You know, if we are slowed down, if we can have our worth so that we can be fallible and then we listen deeply, all of that, those, that clarity and those answers are inside. And that's more my work as a therapist is not finding answers for people, but trying to help them see their own system as an instrument of guidance. It's like the current of the river right? We're, okay, where is that current taking me, you know, and it might take me a little more to the left than I would have gone on my own, but I'm going to trust that process with kind of that inner guide. Listening is so important. Mm -hmm. And so many times we ignore our inner guidance. Yeah. Sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's just, well, maybe not. Yeah. And like mine, super inconvenient or like, it's a nice idea to be authentic in our relationships, but if I'm going to be authentic in my relationship, am I going to lose that relationship? Like it backs up into some pretty basic and important clinical pieces that we as children formed a brain around whether or not we were to listen to ourselves, trust our inner voice and wisdom, be able to bring authenticity And let that just unfold, even if there's consequence to that versus pleasing, you know, which is fine, except if I do need to have that boundary and that displeases you, I need to be able to have a boundary and hope that our relationship can survive that. Well, I know that you talk about befriending yourself, which is funny because I have an old older podcast that's all about how to be your own best friend. So I really identified with that particular part of what you were talking about and treating yourself like your best friend is kind of about loving yourself as you are appreciating yourself and allowing yourself to keep growing at the same time. So did you talk about befriending yourself the way that you talk about it in the book? Mm -hmm. Well, it has to do with that sense of worth um, as a, as an operating kind of foundation and that self-acceptance, I love what you're saying, Carol, that, that that's a really important piece. And we can accept something from a place we aren't judging or being critical. And still, for example, I have had a temper in my life. If I judge that, if I'm shaming of myself with that, that doesn't help me not react. It just keeps me lost in negativity. If I accept that from a, this is how part of my trauma worked is there was kind of a rager inside of me as I accept that I don't allow myself to be unregulated. It's not that being um, ill-tempered is okay, but accepting it starts to create an environment of love, of exploration, of compassion, and that softens. And in the softening, and particularly for people like me that have a temper, usually we're mad at ourselves for getting mad. And again, we're just kind of lost in versus, oh, this is a trauma response. I do need to regulate this emotion, but I don't have to judge myself for it. You you need to create neural pathways around how to work with those big feelings, right? I was kind of raised in the 80s when it was like, oh, just have your feelings. No therapist ever told me, uh, yeah, have your feelings, except when it completely intimidates someone else. That's unhelpful. And they're not even listening to you anymore. You know, so that um, that's a piece in my book is regulating emotion as a path of peace, still expressing ourselves, but making sure that emotion is not running the show. So that's a specific example for me of, of how far I got down the road of befriending myself when I could accept that this was part of my humanity and then I could work with it differently. And the other piece is just the self-talk. People are like relationship to self. What does that mean? I get a massage this weekend or. That means I handle my death and dying affairs for the future. It's really what we narrate all the time. You know, is it critical? Is it judgy? Is it always thinking we should have done something different? Is it always thinking about somebody else's needs and feelings? So that's just a really good place to start. If I think, I don't know if you read in the book, if you were to put your self-talk on a megaphone or a loudspeaker, would you be horrified about what you're saying to yourself, you know? 
And it changes. Self-talk actually changes when we shift toward um, a loving relationship versus a critical one. Yeah. There's a big difference when I see with some of my clients where you go, whoa, did you hear what you said? Say it again. Would you say that to your best friend? Exactly. Like, no, my God, would you stand up for them and say, what's the matter with you? Why are you saying that? This person's wonderful. Or what would you say? That's right. Why would you say that about yourself? It's like, oh, well, people hold themselves sometimes not always to a higher standard than they hold other people. Yes. So if they think they, they don't deserve love, for example, it's like, well, but do you think other people deserve love? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well then why are you so special that you don't deserve love? It's like, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> not that I would put it quite that way with a client, but you know what I mean? It's like, Oh, I, I love myself. what you're saying. You, and, and that it's really just the other side of the coin superiority or inferiority that I would propose love moves in all directions, it is meant to be generous towards self and other, that it is not a practice of narcissism to be generous towards self. And in fact, actually, when we are self-loving, we tend to be less self-involved and that our cup overfloweth in a way. And most of the time that generosity moves outward versus coming from a place of scarcity and, and denial of oneself. I, I have this little trick that I'll say to people that have a hard time loving themselves. Okay, I want you to go to a store or or your healthcare providers. I want you to go get one of those tickets where you have a number because I want you to get in line because it's time for you to get in your own line. And maybe you're not number one in line, but you have to find your place in the line and loving others that includes yourself. As long as it's not a really long number. <laughs> Well, I had a client say to me, well, she brought in and it was, you won't believe this, Carol. I didn't even have a chance to ask like where she was 718. Uh, Well, at least you're in the lane. That's the the important thing. That's right. That's right. And that we do have these ideas in this culture, many cultures around loving oneself is selfish and narcissistic. And Mm -hmm. I really have to, I don't know if you found this in your work, really undo the conditioning to make room for the new paradigm. Yeah. Really challenge those stories. Especially people when they're talking about being helping self-care going, well, but that would be too selfish. Well, but if you, like they say, if you're not happy, nobody's happy. So make yourself happy. That's right. And what I would offer is let's be honest about when you are a martyr and when you just self-sacrifice, is there not a bucket of resentment that gets uh, lives inside of you? Absolutely. We don't get a, we cannot transcend the consequences of our choices. We just can't. And so uh, again, now I have to distract myself and not, not be honest because I've got this resentment. Maybe I said something passive aggressive to that person, but I'm, I'm still not taking care of myself and doing what I need. So resentment is a really helpful, concrete way people can know if they are misattuned to themselves. And often no one asks them to do that. You can say, you know, no to me if, if um, I'm asking you to help me move this weekend and, and that's okay. I can handle that. But what I might not be able to handle is that you resent me if you do say yes, but you don't really want to. Mm. So that kind of has to do with having a conscious relationship with others, because you had mentioned that in the book about how to have a conscious relationship with others. So is that kind of what you're referring to there? Yeah, I didn't know when I kind of answered the call and went on this journey to be a psychotherapist, how much I would be doing couples work. If we think about infidelity rates and the divorce rate, it's kind of no surprise. I also am in a blended family and I have fought very hard as has my husband to have a conscious relationship with one another. And that's because sometimes we've been very unconscious with each other. And so these tools that I've developed that I'll share with your listeners if they're interested, um, three in particular, one on communication, one on repair, and one on bridging differences, really comes from the belly of my own life. I, I definitely saw that clients needed more than I could find, like nonviolent communication, for example, is a wonderful body of work, but I was seeing things that were not addressed that I was seeing in the room that needed to be in there. So I developed the C model and it's one page, but it involves a lot of different pieces of having a conscious communication, conscious conversation. So those elements, it's not just loving people. It's not just practicing kindness. You know, 
I, you got to really get into the, the weeds sometimes about day to day, month to month, what it is to be conscious in a human relationship, especially the long-term ones. So that's the spirit of my, and that's actually one of the biggest chapters actually is conscious relationship because I go through those kinds of tools and the idea of emotional regulation and boundaries and even uncoupling consciously. I try to, I tried to throw a pretty wide net. A lot of good information in there. Uh, I wanted to kind of switch gears slightly. Well, sort of the same in some of it is that I were talking about trauma when I was, um, I was reading the book and it says that, that you can keep you trapped in certain patterns. So you can't awaken fully. Can you offer a couple of suggestions to help someone release some of those patterns of trauma? I mean, I know I do a lot of that with energy work, but it's a different sort of thing than what you do. So yeah, I was wondering if you a, had any, it's a really great question. So the idea that we disassociate from our pain is actually something that is just a, a human reality. Children, especially disassociate from pain because they have very young systems to be able to deal with trauma, pain, and especially if they're alone, and especially if feelings are unwelcome. So what happens in our childhood sets a course of our relationship to hardship and pain. So even though I, as an adult, Catherine, might feel comfortable like dealing with hard stuff, I still might be dealing with an eight-year-old's decision in my brain about, no, 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 that's too big. That's too much. That's too hard. And it was. And so what can happen is that we have tendencies to disassociate from our traumas because to go back is to feel like I'm that eight-year-old or in my case, that 14-year-old when her father left her and told her sister and my sister and I were told we were being left, not just my mom. It was pretty traumatic that that's really intense stuff. Hmm. And so we put that on a high shelf. We don't want to feel those feelings. We want life to move on. The problem is it doesn't stay on a shelf. It is actually part of our being. And when something similar happens in our adult life, that drops way off the shelf. It's right there online. I would say a young injured part of us becomes online. And then I don't know that, but I'm in this young state. And often, actually, my anger was about that young state, but I didn't identify it as a young state. I just identified it as anger. And so that's just really important that we understand what happened to us as children and have we metabolized what happened? Have we done that trauma work? Because we can decide we can compartmentalize it, but we can't override our own system. And when those familiar themes come back up in our life in 2022, that kid <laughs> is ready to do whatever we did as children. It might be overreact. It might be shut down. It might be a combination of both. So the practical tool that I teach people in having a relationship to themselves is actually having a relationship to their young parts, the parts of them that they didn't get something they needed and or may have experienced trauma. And, and we can do some, it's called intrapersonal work in the clinical world where a part will talk to it. So adult Catherine can comfort and talk to 14 year old Catherine, adult Carol can talk to younger, a younger version of you where there was pain and hurt that's unresolved. And for me, that's what helped me with my worth is when I would feel unworthy, I just felt unworthy with the parts work. I could see, oh, that's 14 year old Catherine. She's just confused because her dad left her. I don't have to judge her, but it's not all of me. And I can actually help her go, you know what, sweetie? He didn't know what he was doing. And he did, by the way, Carol, do a lot of repair work by 19. He was in AA and he was doing his immense work. And he and I had an incredible journey having repaired those moments. But I had to do the rest of it myself. The damage was kind of done that and, and lasted long past 19 years old. It took me a lot of years to really heal that, that injured girl. It's amazing how long and how, how much of an impact something oh, younger gosh. will kind of hang in there That's forever. Right. I sometimes. sometimes say to people who are married, I'm like, who is having the relationship? Are the children who are young and injured having a relationship or do we have adults in the room? And so often. And again, it's not about being stuck in the past or it's only about childhood wounding, but man, if you haven't dealt with that, it is a lot about that in terms of the, like you say, the word patterns, 
patterns come from somewhere. So for me, I don't help people with their patterns. I help people with what sources their patterns and patterns dissipate as soon as that healing and resolution occurs. Sometimes it's funny, just knowing what causes something can heal it. I found you don't even necessarily have to work through all of the details. Sometimes, sometimes it's just the awareness of what is causing the issue that can all of a sudden heal the issue. And it can happen in the blink of an eye when you, the awareness happens and other times you need to work through things for years. It depends on the person. And I'm actually glad you're speaking to both because I would offer though I have experienced that in spiritual moments or deeply therapeutic moments. It's also naive that um, and gestalt therapy, you may not have this as a background, but is based on the premise. If you bring people to awareness, change ensues. And I love gestalt therapy. And some of my work includes some of the tenets of gestalt therapy, but I do not agree with that actually, because I've not seen that in my clinical practice, that sometimes we actually have to roll up our sleeves and it is not just awareness. And then I heal. So sometimes, and not all times. And I think that's where a coach or a therapist can help someone determine what's what's wanting to happen here, what's needed, if anything, beyond my awareness. Yeah. And for me, if it's really deep work where it has to be something they need to go into it and it really, really need to, then I refer somebody to a therapist because as a life coach, I'm more into where do you want to go from here to there? And if there's a lot of past history regarding it, sometimes we can move through it quickly. And sometimes you just can't. You need extra help. So that's when I have people that I recommend. I know that that line in the sand between uh, life coaching and psychotherapy is really important. So it's nice to hang with professionals that really respect where that is. Well, and I have oddball things that I do like past life therapy and things like that, which is different from other people since I read past lives, which can help people understand why they're interacting with someone in a different way than you would. You go, what was our original thing that we're supposed to learn from this? Oh my God, really? Yeah. I already learned that. Why am I dealing with this person anymore? And then all of a sudden they're no longer, they have a different connection to that person exactly. or no connection anymore. And they just stop seeing the person because they've learned. There you go. I'm done. And other times it's like, and then it's like, then it's an awareness. And I'm almost like an acceptance of the other person in their life as in, oh, now that I know that why you're there, I don't have to hate you anymore. Now I can just learn my lesson and let you be in the same room with me. That's right. Those are our teachers for sure. Hey, you want to hear a really quick fun story yeah. where my husband and I went to a psychic and she's like, because we have a very intense relationship. It's never been physically violent. We're just, we just are very strong. And so it's probably why we've made it. We're very passionate. We do some pretty amazing things in life, but it's intense. So the psychic sat down and she's like, oh, you guys have had many, many lifetimes together. It's like, oh, really? She said, actually, usually you kill each other. And instead of that being like horrible, my husband Gary and I are like, that makes total sense. So she's so we're high fived it and like, hey, we haven't killed each other yet in this lifetime. And I think we're doing well. <laughs> but it very much explained a really intense dynamic um, that can happen at times. Yeah. Yeah. There's all different kinds of reasons why people are together, abandonment issues and all sorts of things that people have to learn and grow. And if you keep meeting the same person, first you do it to me, and then I do it to you and back and forth and back and forth. It's like, somebody's got to break the cycle or this is going to go on forever. That's right. That's right. And even if only one person does, the other person may still have to learn it, but they can do it with someone else. Yeah. They don't have to you know, keep the same cycle with the same person. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like I said in the book about zooming out and seeing all the rivers connect to the ocean, being able to zoom out kind of a dual awareness yeah. and not getting kind of lost in it all from whatever perspective we're zooming out is uh, so freeing, so transformative. I can be in it differently when I can see the whole. And that's something I always tell people when they're, if they're meditating or whatever they're doing in order to even connect more to that consciously awakened self zoom back, take a step back and don't be so in the middle of everything that you see nothing. That's right. Except for like the anger, the whatever that is, it's, you have to take that step back. That's right. And it helps for me to hook into a higher consciousness, which is whatever that means. You say, you don't talk about God, but I don't really either. I just talk about my higher self or my whatever 
I feel is my higher connection. That's right. Because the higher I can get, the clearer picture I can get about what's happening. I love that. And this is more, and this is not in the book because it wasn't even happening when I put it in the book, but Oregon is has now decided to allow psilocybin uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's really powerful research about how it is very different than meth or heroin. It's not escapism. It is not for recreation. Um, but the war on drugs really shut down um, some deeply important healing modalities and breakthrough therapies that are now have made their way back through the legitimacy of our system. And it's the same kind of thing, but at a neurological level, it's like these medicines for not just eight minutes and not just eight hours, but it's looking like research wise about eight days, take us out of the default mode network. And that is huge from a trauma perspective and that, okay, then I can settle down. I'm a vet. I saw horrible things or did horrible things in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? But my brain can't go to that trauma. I can actually zoom out, begin to move through that trauma. And then hopefully, and this is why it needs to be with therapists and it needs to be in uh, in a very important environment that we keep that openness beyond that eight days, but that's an integration piece. So it's different than people doing those kind of substances and ritual even and with reverence with the therapeutic piece of making sure we integrate them, then we're expanding our default mode network. Are those things like ayahuasca and things like that? Ayahuasca is one. That's not what got legalized. Psilocybin is mushrooms. Mm. Um, MDMA, which is known as ecstasy or molly, but that's when it's used as more of a street drug. It used to be legal in the 80s. MDMA was used for couples and hospice work. And that's actually in 2023 also coming down the pike. You know, it's very uh, controlled and and regulated in terms of how practitioners are going to be able to do it. But one really beautiful part, especially with the psilocybin, is that it's about uh, the indigenous peoples and that this is not just a pharmaceutical kind of approach to this, but it's really bringing in or returning to a reverence for plant medicine and how it can speak to us just as some might a different way through meditation or listening to their intuition as, as another tool in the toolbox. It's important to have a lot of different tools because different tools are better with different people. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I wouldn't do this personally um, if it were the only way, because I just, with my background with two alcoholic parents, actually, and just, I drugs and alcohol, recreationally have to be really monitored in my mind. And that, so this is what I can say to my clients, Carol is I've had transformation the hard way of like just slugging it out, you know, session after session or neural pathway at a time. I've also experienced it in plant medicine. So there's a lot of ways to get there and it doesn't have to be through drugs through. So through this kind of experience. Well, and I know that I had a particular client that was going to therapy and my energy work, she would go, I got it stuck in my body. I feel like it's stuck in my cells. I need to have an energy session. So once a month or so, she'd come in and she'd feel like she was clearing the stuff Mm -hmm. from her cells that she had just brought up that she didn't even know was there. Mm -hmm. So she goes, her therapist was amazed how fast she went through things because she she brought it up. Then she'd clear it with me the yeah. different way. And then she'd go back and bring more stuff up with the therapist. I love that. I love that. Working really in concert with um, another provider and just, you know, different things just at different times, but also different things offer a piece of the puzzle in terms of our healing. And yeah. really you're connecting the important dot that it's, it's nice to have an idea of being wakeful, but if we do have traumas that have not healed, and there's a book called the body keeps the score, like our bodies hold that energy. To transform and be wakeful, we need to heal. In order to heal, we have to feel. We have to return and clear um, that material. So, yeah, yeah. And that's connect to joy, I would imagine, that once we're in that place of open-hearted and and more healed and whole, joy is a natural byproduct of that. I don't have to try to go get happy and chase it. I just... (laughs) Right. Return to my original state. And right. Well, and it's funny because I always find that if you're peaceful, you're also joyful. Yeah. If you're 
have gratitude, you also have joy. If you have, you know, it's always each one is kind of connected to each one. So love is connected to to joy as well. So when you feel one, you have pieces of all the other higher vibrational emotions. That's right. And this is um, a piece I've certainly appreciated over the years and especially over the last, I don't know, three to five politically, the pandemic is how many people have an anxiety disorder that were never diagnosed, were never treated. They don't have panic attacks. They don't have phobias. They don't know that this is not normal to have a system that is actually living in the polyvagal world at a kind of fight or flight level because it's so normalized. I'm just stressed. Isn't that, isn't this the way it goes? And so the idea that we could also help people their nervous systems be restored, which is then a non-anxious state, which is a non-defended state, then is peace, is joy, is everything you just said, is love, right? But that's a huge thing. And I don't prescribe medication. I can't, that's not what my license includes, but a lot of people that come to me are not interested in being on antidepressants or anti-anxieties, but their system is absolutely compromised. So it's a lot of body practice just to get their nervous system kind of more operating in a ventral vagal state. Oh, so one thing I really wanted to make sure we covered today, which was something that you said you are already enough. And that's something I use at the end of every single episode of my show. (laughs) And so I wanted to make sure that we talked about your intrinsic worth that can be a little confusing to people because they still want to better themselves but how can they do that when they're already enough? And that's what people get. They talk to me about like, wait a minute, what? So I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a way to maybe better explain the difference between bettering ourselves and that statement that we're already enough. Yeah. So if I'm chasing a betterment that gives me worth because I don't have full worth, like esteem that goes up and down, we need to stop and not chase because it's operating on a false premise that I, that I have to do something and that I could even do something that would create more intrinsic value to this, this being. So intrinsic worth is intrinsic hard stop. The path of evolution, that path of growth, growth you were referring to actually comes out of loving ourselves and is part of just the human journey, just like there's developmental markers for children. They learn to walk, then they learn to talk. Like evolution is not that they become more worthy because now that baby can walk instead of crawl. That does not create worth. It is about expanding capacities. And so if you want to get A's to go to a good college, get A's to go to a good college. Cause if you don't get A's, you might not be accepted into that college, but your worth did not change. Your worth did not change. And so people love this, but it's often when a relationship ends or someone's fired or they have a body that is aging or imperfect that is like, Ooh, okay. Now I see how trapped I am in this idea of conditional worth and Western culture is very conditional. If we have money, you know, if if there's attractability, if you are a high achiever, if you're smart. So I, I just want people to hang out. What it would be like every day to wake up, I am enough and have nothing to prove. And as an earlier podcaster today asked me, do you think people would then just think, oh, but then I won't, I won't have high standards? It's like, Actually, what it means is we we aren't perfectionistic because we're not trying to overcompensate for feeling not good enough and feeling insecure. The high standards are just like, I just want a really good day on the planet and, and I want the best relationships I can have. So I have high standards about that. But again, if I fail, it doesn't mean I my worth is less. It means I'm it's it's part of my humanity. So you know, evolution is a wonderful idea, but often we evolve through our regrets, through our mistakes. So that's why we have to have intrinsic worth securely kind of in our corner, because then I can kind of move forward on that learning curve of life and not shame spiral if I if I lose my way, fall off a horse kind of thing. Does that help? I think so. I think, um, you know, this episode is specifically about awakening to our true self. So I think that also speaks to that. 
Yeah. And is there anything else that you wanted to mention maybe about that? For me, I find that having more trust in ourselves is important. Having maybe the willingness to go into silence, which a lot of us are not because we are talk all the time and we don't listen very often. Yeah. So a lot of times to what the universe is trying to tell us. Yeah. Or what they're trying to knock us over the head with because we're not listening in the first place. Right. right. <laughs> well, get quiet um, and in deeper longer stints of meditation one can find this place that we are love we are and that that is a natural state for us um what i you know so to me i'm not helping people create their intrinsic worth i'm helping them undo ideas that it what isn't already there and so when especially when i work with parents i'll say well are your kids intru- intrinsically worthy even if they can't kick a soccer ball or even if they aren't the smartest, smartest, you know, kid in the class. It's like, absolutely. So that, that nugget of like, of course it's in your bones. That's who we are. And especially from a spiritual perspective, if the universe is glorious and amazing and this life force that is like so many things, if I am that, how could I say I'm not enough? (laughs) So it's part of an identification that I am also a spiritual being and So I help people one way or another find their own worth. Oh, you're a parent? Then just think of it on behalf of yourself like you do your kids. Oh, you are spiritually oriented? Then source is incredible, like so many things, beautiful, generous, uh, life-giving. Then how could that not be enough? And you are that. And before we go, I always ask an action question. So I want to help the audience move forward. So what are the top three things that you would tell people that would help them to take action to awaken to their true self? And then I usually, after you do yours, then I'll throw my ideas in. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. You know, I would start with a mindfulness practice every day. And I say mindfulness, not meditation, because some people will try to meditate. And then that sounds like that will take too much time and then they won't do anything. So I do a quick little three-minute at most mindfulness practice with every session, almost every session clients have a choice. So I start with deep breathing just to get people present in their bodies, not just observing their breath. I secondly have them really anchor in present time so they're not living in a mind that's all over the place and distracted. And thirdly, I have them turn all eyes closed toward themselves and without an agenda, just feel that tethering to their human self mm. that that in a felt way. So I actually do that with every cup of coffee I have in the morning. I, close, I just my husband, I just do my little three minutes. So I would start with something in the beginning of the day. So it sets you into a connected place. Secondly, of course, as we're speaking of, do the work. Um, get help if you have trauma. If you're having a hard time embodying these kinds of ideas, then you don't have to be alone in it. You just don't have to be alone in it and find the right person too, because not every therapist or coach is, is going to really be that one. And so, you know, love yourself enough to be picky and then, and then get yourself in line, I guess, just find a way every day to practice a generous uh, generously loving yourself as much as you would be like you were talking about how, how many people you see and how much you give to others. So mindfulness, make sure you've got help if there's trauma to contend with and every day choose an action of love towards self. And it's funny because part of mine are kind of related to part of yours. When I was looking okay. at it, my first thing is to let go of resistance and not mm-hmm. to let things that come up that you're struggling with to struggle so hard. Because if you embrace what you're resisting, it's easier to move through it mm-hmm. rather than fighting it and strangling the hell out of it. Sorry. Right, <laughs> it's right. like, I hate this thing. Why does this come up? It's like, no, just be at peace with it and allow it to embrace what it is instead of fighting it the whole time, mm-hmm. whether it's a person or it's an incident or it's COVID or it's whatever it may be. And then to keep gratitude moving through your life so that you can always learn and grow rather than taking yeah, that, again, that resistance thing, find some gratitude for what it is and keep reaching higher and connect to a higher source so that 
Mm. you get better information. And that's kind of my three things. I love that. And if I could quickly throw in, I don't know if you know the poem uh, Rumi wrote called The Guest House. It is kind of what you said of this, like just welcoming everything as a seat at the table, whether it's a circumstance or, you know, our sorrows and that uh, when we're not in resistance and fear, yeah, something really transforms. Now, before we go, you did want to mention about the package of relationship tools that you're going to offer to the listeners. I thought maybe you might want to explain a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the three I'd be happy to offer um, are actual tools. And it's kind of a, a way to be conscious in our relationship, but have kind of a left brain approach to it, not just intention, but actually a structured way and, and important ideas uh, to keep in mind. So I have one called the C model. And I fashioned that as an acronym for self-soothing, expansion, and exchange. But it's fashioned after the movie Avatar, because if, if you watch that movie, the first one, second one's coming out, when they didn't say, I love you, in, instead of saying, I love you, they would say, I see you. Mm-hmm. So the C model is um, a package of, it's a communication uh, process. Then um, the HEAL model, H-E-A-L, is actually for repair work. And I find that, again, it's so important that if we try to forgive someone, but it lives in us as an an injury that has never actually been processed or how we've injured others, self-forgiveness, that that active repair, people don't know how to do that beyond saying, I'm sorry. And my, my work includes an atonement piece. And then the third tool is called bridging differences. And it's just to help people find an option that's truly a win-win. It's collaboration, which is not always easy, um, but the more a much more sustainable path for people together to find a collaborative approach. So, and how would they get that? Would they email you or what's the best way? Yeah, they can email me. Um, and I don't know if you have a chat box or something that you can put in, but I'll energy, put it in the episode description. That's great. So at my energy online at comcast.net, which is energy counseling, I N N E R G Y counseling is my practice within my overall, you know, book publishing and and teaching stuff so they can find me there. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, and I want to thank everybody for listening to us today. And especially of course, my guest, Catherine Jansen Burkett for discussing awakening our true self and lots of other really cool stuff that we were talking about. Y'all you'll find in the show notes, links to both my and Catherine's social media and our websites. And you can get more information about Catherine's book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness on her website. And you can also purchase it directly from Amazon, I noticed, when I went looking for it out of curiosity. If you'd like to know more about life coaching with me, intuitive readings, or Merconics multidimensional energy, either to receive the energy or to become a practitioner, please reach out to me either by email at carol at connecttojoy.com or through my website. And Catherine, thank you so much for joining me here. It has been a true pleasure. Oh, me too, Carol. Thank you so much for having me on your show and take really good care. Thanks. And until next week, be courageous and reach higher. And remember, awakening is a journey and not an end destination. So just take one step at a time, get the help you need and get out there and find your joy and speak your truth. Make you a priority because you deserve it. Thank you for listening to Connect to Joy. If you love the show, make sure you rate, review, and share this podcast. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. Contact the host, Carol DeShane, with questions and comments, ideas for future episodes, or if you would like to become a guest. And remember, transformation is a journey and not an end destination. So be kind to yourself, because you are already enough to have the joyful, limitless life that you desire.